Welcome to Women Read Scripture. My name is Mariana Richardson. I'm Stephanie Dibb Sorensen. And I'm Annette Marie Lantos Tilleman Dick. And we are so glad that you're back with us again, Stephanie. Thank it you. is wonderful to have this discussion. Today we're going to be talking about Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 13. And the focus really of our discussion will be the sacrament, but also service. When we talk about sacrament and how that has to do with what we actually do in our lives is kind of what we're going to be discussing a lot about. And a matter of fact, I want to start with the story of a woman who did something for the Savior. And if we turn to Mark 14, I'm going to be looking specifically in verses 3 through 9. And being in Bethany, and realize, I think it's interesting to note that the Savior was in Bethany a lot during these wind-up days because he was so loved by Mary and Martha and Lazarus that I'm sure that he just felt like you know, they were family and that he was spending those last days with his family. In the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and I'm sure very expensive because of what we're going to hear later. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? And we know in other accounts, too, that that was probably that discussion was started by Judas. For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me, for ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good, but me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She is come aforehand to anoint my body for the bearing. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Now, I love this story because of this great woman who really understood what was happening in terms of the Savior. She understood, you know, some of the things that he had said because he did say it pretty much exactly what was going to happen. It, it shouldn't have been a surprise. But oftentimes it's the same thing that happens in our lives when we're know that something's going to happen and we just don't want to think about it. We just don't want to even acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of get that same feeling about the apostles. Totally, totally. They're, they're That's just exactly, like, no, you know, we're... I know we're, that feeling. I, it's awful, right? And you, you, just, you don't want to look at it. No. You don't, and you can't believe it. And you're sure something's going to happen that it's not going to be that way. And that's what they were constantly doing. They were saying, no, don't say that. No, you know, that can't happen. And yet we have this beautiful woman who comes and anoints his feet, so understanding that this is preparation for the bearing. So what I wanted to talk and ask you about are, who are some great women that you know or in your life who have been examples of this kind of faith? And before you do so, so be thinking of your answers. Before you do so, I did want to read President Iring's thought about this too. You know, he, he read this exact same account, and then he said that short scripture is sweet and wise counsel for the faithful sisters in the Lord's kingdom in tumultuous times. You will pray to know whom the Father would have you serve 
out of love for him and for our Savior. And you will not expect a public memorial following the example of the woman in Mark's scriptural account, whose holy deed to honor the Savior of the world is remembered, but not her name. My hope is that the sisters in our family, and he's talking very specifically about all the the women in his family, and there are a lot of women in his family, will do the best they can out of love for God to serve those in need. So who are some women that you can think of who have that same example of service, not doing it for the fanfare, you know, not doing it for any other reason than to serve their Savior, Jesus Christ? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say really quick, that, and this is from the depths of my heart, because it's something that I kind of had to work through. Every mother, every mother, because I think about this, when I think of this parable and how they were upset because they're like, she has all of it, like this expensive oil and all of this stuff, and she's using it to wash feet. I think about all of the women who have amazing gifts, talents, um, things that they could do in so many different ways, and they use it, and and they choose to be mothers. They choose to wash feet. They choose to do things like that. And P- and the world and the world says, what a waste. Yeah. You could make such a big difference in a big corporation right. or whatever. And not to diminish those con- those contributions, but I'm talking about the deliberate choice to set some of those things aside and and raise children or to balance those things and not and the Lord specifically said we talked we talked last week how the Lord says if you have done it unto one of the least of these, you have done right. it unto me. And so at, when a woman takes all of those valuable gifts and is willing to spend them on a little one, they're doing it to the Savior. And he says, she has done a good thing to me. I love that. I love, and of course, they don't, as wonderful as our children become, they do not remember any of that, you right. know, uh, any of those years of, and all the special things you do for them. And there's, mm, <laughs> it I is a, pictures, take pictures. Take you pictures. Know? <laughs> take, mothers, take all pictures. They work. won't remember anything. All of that work <laughs> and all of that sacrifice that a mother does that goes unseen and nobody knows, it is a sacred secret that she knows and the Lord knows. Just like there's no name mm-hmm. said in the scriptures, even though throughout the world, throughout anybody who's read the New Testament, all of them read this beautiful account he knows, of what he knows she's who done. she was. He knows who and she is, is, and he honors her. Yeah, I love it. Well, you know, you don't like to name names, but I will say, the women. I have been in the same ward now for, I think, about forty years. We they it has had different names, and we just for the first time we moved into a different building about maybe five years ago. Um, but but basically, I've been with at least a certain group of women. Who are the same? We we lived in what was really the inner city of Denver for a long time. It has grown up around us to be very hip. So now we live in a very hip place, but it was not hip when we started there. <laughs> and I have seen over those years a number of women, and I'm going to name some names: Soledad Lucero, um, Elizabeth V. Hill, Chris Sandoval. All of them happen to have Spanish names. Chris happens to be. She happens to be Swedish, but her husband was not. But these women have served so endlessly and so faithfully and so much that is not seen by anyone and done it at the granular level. And I was impressed 
by the level of inspiration our leaders have. Because our ward has always, and it's still somehow, we love, I love our wards. Our ward right now is a truly bilingual ward. We speak in Spanish and English simultaneous in our ward. And we never know if the person standing up is going to speak English or Spanish. And we make it work and it's wonderful. But um, it isn't, I mean, what I was very impressed because Elizabeth, for example, and and Chris too, both of these women and um, sister and and Soledad in different ways, too, um, has been the wife of the bishop, but they have been called to important positions in the stake, which I think exhibits the inspiration of our stake presidents, frankly, that because you wouldn't really look at sort of like what good can come out of Nazareth. That's sort of um, our ward is that ward, you know? But it is full of, we adore the ward. It is just the best place ever. And I have been so impressed over the years by the example of these two women. There are many, many women whose examples impress me. Pat Matello, so many, who give so much. But... When you see it, you know it. The ones who are going to plan ahead so that they can celebrate the ones who need to be celebrated, so they can mourn with those who need to be mourned, those who mourn, so that they can do the work, the Savior's work on on this earth. And I'm so grateful for examples like that in my life. You know, I love the way that you said that because I think there are so many women like that throughout the world in the gospel that are just those quiet doers that don't have the fanfare that that maybe aren't you know the most educated or the ones with the fanciest house or you know the ones that you would think that are the leaders instead they're the doers they're the ones that just are the servants that really see a need and just go quietly take care of it one person that i want to kind of highlight was a sister camilla kimball and um, she was my great aunt, which oh. I thought was, you know, so wonderful to to get her to know her on that level. But I also love the fact that she read President Kimball's talk on the role of righteous women, mm-hmm. that it was her that actually gave that talk at General Conference. She was the one that read it, even though it was spent, he yeah. was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So she read his words. Oh, but the yes. fact that she was the one that read his talk about righteous women, about righteous women so is so powerful. But I just wanted to, since, uh, you know, I, I know Annette knows and remembers this talk so well, since I was a young mom, when she said this talk, these words just meant so much to me and really helped shape me in terms of my thoughts and feelings about righteous women. I just wanted to share a couple of little points that she said in that talk. She said, much of the major growth that is coming to the church in these last days will come because of the good women of the world in whom there is often such an inner sense of spirituality will be drawn to the church in large numbers. This will happen to the degree that the women of the church reflect righteousness and articulateness in their lives, and to the degree that the women of the church are seen as distinct and different in happy ways. And I love that, in happy ways, from the women of the world. And then later on, she said, among the real heroines in the world who will come into the church are women who are more concerned with being righteous than being selfish. These real heroines have true humility, which places a higher value on integrity than on visibility. So 
when I talk about the description of righteous women, what are your thoughts? I mean, does that kind of change who you would have put in terms of that pedestal of heroines? No. No, I just, I love that vision. And for me, this beautiful story about this woman who washed the feet of the Savior, wow. I think that women have always been God's secret weapon. I think so too. something about a, a, a famous woman who also though really impressed me over the years, and you'll laugh, and it's not political, but Nancy Pelosi, I have to tell you, that woman... When you saw her up close and personal, she was like a Relief Society president, the way that she handled her job. She cared about every single individual. She went the many extra miles. You had to see it up close to appreciate it. I used to think, oh, Nancy is way too liberal for me. Things have changed because things moved to the left. But when I saw Nancy Pelosi in action in the U.S. House of Representatives, the way she would stay for hours and hours so that everyone could have a picture with her. When somebody died, the way she went the extra mile to make sure everything was arranged, to make a truly meaningful memorial. But she did this herself over and over again. I was impressed in a way that you don't always realize that some of the leadership we have is really superb and some of the women we have leading are really women to be admired. You know, I'm I'm so glad you stated that fact because I think all too often we look at the politics. Yes. Or we also don't realize that people who aren't members of the church, especially women in positions of power, have these same qualities and that can they can exhibit those same qualities and have a lot of positive effect on those around them. We also have an interesting thing that happens right after this, where the Lord specifically talking about his death, talks about, you know, that somebody's going to betray him. And we have a lot of people saying, Lord, is it I? You know, am I the one that's going to be doing this? And so um, I know, Annette, you were going to talk about that question, Lord, is it I? Yes, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful passage, actually, because um, it's a very hard time, you know, when you hear this, let's, it will go to Matthew and um, Matthew 26, verse 20. We'll start looking at verse 20. The disciples had made this Passover meal. They had gone to a special place. I I don't know if you've ever been to, I'm sure you've been to Israel and, and been by this place where Jesus told them to find the man who owned the place and tell him, I'm ready. And he said, fine, you'll have your you know, you may prepare it here. Um, so they were sitting up in this in this room, and um, when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve, it says. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Can you imagine? I mean, just, it's what you said, Mariana, that, you know, nobody wants to hear this, you know. Right. No. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Elder Uchtdorf had a beautiful talk on this. Um, And I want to stop for a moment and talk about that because Elder Uchtdorf noted that the disciples didn't question the truth of what he said, which that's what I would have stopped right there. No. 
that just couldn't happen. Um, and they didn't point the finger at one another and say, is it here? Isn't that great? Is it, is, it is, is it this person? Is it that or person? Or it's probably or it's dot, probably. dot, dot. Yes. <laughs> This person's going to do it. Instead, they were exceedingly sorrowful and began to say to themselves, is it I? Elder Uchtdorf said in these simple words, Lord, is it I? Lies the beginning of wisdom and the pathway to personal conversion and lasting change. In that in that um, talk, you know, I think all of us must remember, because I know I do, <laughs> I, I have many reminders of it. He tells the story of a neighbor looking out and seeing his neighbor's perfect lawn, but there was a dandelion in the middle of his lawn, and he was just like, oh, you know, I wish, can't he see that dandelion to pull it out, you know, to get that dandelion out? It really bothered him every time he looked at his neighbor's lawn. And Elder Uchtdorf said that, you know, he came home to his lawn and didn't notice that his lawn was full of dandelions. <laughs> I am the lawn full of dandelions. <laughs> I, I'm trying to embrace the dandelions sometimes, you know, but but that but I um the talk made I used to think dandelions were okay, then after that talk I was like, uh oh, is this a problem? <laughs> but but I do think um that this idea there's another wonderful pickles cartoon. Um, with, with, um, and that, you know, Pickles is, it's written by a man who's LDS, that cartoon apparently. And it's an older guy, older, probably younger than I am, but, and his wife, and they, they're, it's their various activities and, and interactions. And his wife is looking out the window and she says, oh, I just can't understand how our neighbor, Mr. Jones, can have those dirty windows. I just can't understand. And her husband, he goes and gets some Windex and sprays their window mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. clearly very dirty. And she says, oh, never mind. <laughs> but I think that that, I love that way of looking at this parable to ask, is it I? To see how can we make things better? And it's not that we be accusing ourselves, but that we understand that it's easy to see what the other person is doing wrong. It's much harder because we do convince ourselves that our sins are less glaring and less important. Um, and I've mentioned this before, but I do think that it is helpful to realize that there is a psychological truth that when we see something in someone out there and it really bothers us, usually there's something we need to look at in ourselves that we haven't. And if we ask the spirit to help us, if we first of all agree we are going to forgive whatever is out there, whatever seems to be bothering us, that we're going to forgive it. And then we're going to look at ourselves and see what could it be? Because usually we won't, we'll say, oh no, I am not like that. But if we ask the spirit for help, he will show us, the spirit, he or she will show us what it is that we didn't see in ourselves that is quite like what we were so upset about then. And then we have that wonderful assurance that as we have forgiven, we will be forgiven because it's yeah. not a pleasant process. We usually discover things about ourselves that hurt and that we feel very uncomfortable with. But as we forgive and as we make a deep commitment that, yes, I'm willing to completely forgive that, we know that we will be completely forgiven. And as President Uchtdorf said, 
It is the pathway to personal conversion, conversion and lasting change, excuse me, and lasting change. This is the way we continue to fill our lands. We continue to grow. Um, but let me go on. So um, the Savior says, and he answered and said, he that dippeth his hands with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Um, the Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It has been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judith, Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Um, I'm going to cough for a second. I'm so tired. Sorry. <coughs> I just have something in my throat. <clears throat> I got some, but I just didn't want to <clears throat> cough while we were doing it. So I'm sorry. So I'm, I'm forgive me. I, yeah. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I feel better um, now. I'm not going <clears> to <throat> talk about, there's there's an interesting part about it because, and I'm not going to there, but I, I wanted to bring up something about Judas. There are many stories about Judas and why he did it. Many people say it was because he had the money and he wanted it for the money, but many have observed that 30 pieces of silver was very little money. And it would be very odd that he would do something like this for 30 pieces of silver. A great um, source of interesting information about both the Old Testament and the New Testament comes from an unlikely source. Isaac Asimov mm -hmm. was best known for being a brilliant science fiction I love his writer. Foundation series. Oh, it's really, it's people, really good, good, and, good novels. But he loved knowledge, and he sought to understand so many things in the world, and the Bible he felt was important, and he delved into it in, in great depth. And um, he had a thought. So Judas is supposed to mean, because it's called Judas Iscariot. And people have always assumed that Iscariot means man of Kariot. It's a theory, he said, that had been widely accepted for centuries, but it is doubtful, nevertheless. He said, um, it is possible when we realize how many scribes handled the, script, the scripts of um, the, the documents of the scriptures, that the name was really Judah Scariot. And the Scariot would mean Judas the terrorist. Um, he said, suppose Judas was heart and soul one of those extremists in Israel, the zealots, who believed very much that they needed to overthrow the um, Romans. And he may have attached himself to Jesus in hope that this man might indeed be the Messiah whose coming would put an end to the hated Roman dominion at once. It may have been with a gathering excitement that he traveled with Jesus to Jerusalem and he witnessed, witnessed Jesus' triumphant entrance, his cleansing of, his temp, of the temple, and his gathering popularity. Judah may have felt that Passover would be the signal for the divine battle, so often foretold in detail by the prophets, in which all the forces of heathendom would be destroyed and the son of David would be seated on the throne of the kingdom. What changed? Oh, I, I don't know if he says it later. Well, let me go on. What changed things? It may well have been the matter of the Roman tribute and Jesus' retort that what was Caesar's would be given to Caesar. 
To Judas, that may have seemed like a disclaimer of any intention to oppose Rome politically and a declaration on Jesus' part that he was concerned with religious and ethical matters only. And that would have been a crushing blow to him. Then too, if Jesus did in fact preach about the second coming, and if that passage is not an insertion by later hands, after Jesus's death, wait, sorry, let me, let me, I don't want to do things that wouldn't be relevant. Well, let me, I want to tell you the other thing he said. So the Scariot were people who carried daggers in their robes because they believed that killing Romans was going to be the fast, Roman leaders would be the fastest way to um, overthrowing Rome. And I mean, it seemed not improbable that a mistake could have been made, and it was Judas Scariot instead of Judas Scariot. And, and that he was so disappointed that Jesus was not going to help them be liberated from Rome. In the way he thought. In the way that, right, that, and exactly. And that, that thinking was deeply embedded in right. who he was. Mm-hmm. I thought, we don't know if it's true, but I right. thought it was an interesting thought and right. worth worth consideration as we want to judge and parse people out in our own way. Yeah. Um, so th- that um, that was that was something that I just wanted to share. And um, it is interesting that in lists of Jesus's disciples in the scriptures, Simon Peter is always first and Judas is always last on those lists. <laughs> um, and um, I think that... Um, Many say that, that Judas was the only Judean among the, Gal- the disciples, that others were from Galilee. But this is also not clear because it may be that there is this other possibility, in which case it's very likely that he was also a Galilean. Um, so I, I thought that those were interesting Oh, that was that's fascinating. Share. That's fascinating. And I do want to go now to the sacrament because that's the next thing that happens when we talk about what's happening at the Passover feast. So, um, Stephanie. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'd love to pick that up. If In Matthew 26, um, I'm going to look in at, starting in verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye of it, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And I think that as I as I read this this time, thinking thinking about it anew, as we do each time we study the scriptures, I was struck by something that I hadn't thought of before. And it's it's a very simple idea, but it made me think that I might approach the sacrament a little bit differently, is that this was when Jesus performed this ordinance of the sacrament, this is when they were all gathered together in an intimate setting, spending time together. They're, they're, it's, it's a time where he's going to administer service to them. It's very, it's very intimate. And this is at a time in his ministry where they are often surrounded by many and have a great deal of attention. And yes. this is like an escape that it's, it's just this little 
family of disciples. And as they sit together and he offers the sacrament to them, I realized that it was a very special time that represented their unity and closeness together and time together before he left. And I thought to myself, what if I considered the sacrament as a moment to take time to be intimately with the Savior? And just to consider him there, to, be, to consider him sitting with me, and if I were with him, and what would I be thinking about? And what would, what would our conversation be? What would he be saying to me? And I just thought, if, if I approach the sacrament table with that idea of an intimate, loving meeting with my Savior, how would I approach the sacrament differently? And so that was just something that, that I've been thinking about. And then in verse 29, he says, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine. More allusion to what was going to his be departure. Right. And he said, Until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And I'm going to maybe mess up some Jewish traditions here, so you feel free to, to fill in <laughs> fill in the blanks. But I also thought, like, if I think of the sacrament in this sense of, of it is a time for me to commune intimately with the Savior and think about his sacrifice and what I want to say to him about that and what he would say to me about his sacrifice. I was also reminded that part of Jewish tradition is to set out a chair, an empty chair. Oh, yeah. there's a, well, there's a chair set at the table for Elijah. Yes, yes. For, uh, for the coming Elijah. And I just kind of transferred that concept into, we know that the Savior is going to come again. And so he is that, that empty chair at this communion and that we are inviting him to come each time we take the sacrament and to be a part of that and I to look forward to him. You know, we celebrate Pesach, which is a Passover. And of course we do always break, you know, the matzah and sure. pass it around. I mean, so this, you need to understand this wasn't a special new thing. The only thing that was new is he explained what this was because of course that well because of course you know the reason that the jews were able to leave egypt was that they sacrificed of course a paschal lamb mm -hmm. and they put that blood mm -hmm. above the doorpost mm -hmm. of their house so that the angel of death who visited the house of the egyptians and that was the last straw that the egyptian kings had just let them go but um so so here we are at pesach with this symbolism very very vibrant as we look at it from the perspective of the savior's sacrifice and um and we still but we do the traditions and we always have the empty chair for elijah and i love and i always say well we know that elijah has come i always say that yeah. <laughs> you know because we do know that elijah did come and right. he did institute this wonderful practice um to joseph smith of see a turning the hearts of the fathers towards the children, the hearts of children toward their fathers through the wonderful genealogical work that we do and that we see going afire in the world. You know, I mean, it's fantastic that we, and with so many incredible tools that they have now, scientific tools to help people 
find one another. But, but I love this idea that you have, Stephanie, because now I can say this seat is because we know the Savior is coming too. Talking about returning us to the remind, keeping our hearts and minds focused on the second coming right. and being prepared and how we can prepare. It's a much more action oriented right anticipation and and i just and i just thought mentally as i go to the sacrament every week am i do i have a chair for the savior so that we can commune that we can commune together and do that well i also love the fact that when elijah came we now know that that was during the passover it would have been I, the same time that they were amazing. i know yes. and and so but i also really love your your concept of this idea of is the savior sitting beside me is the Savior, because it is also part of the Passover meal. I mean, that's when he's bringing this up. But also, I think of that idea of our family meals and family dinners, you know, when we all kind of get together around the table mm -hmm. and we're there. And, and I also was thinking about how I should also look at my brothers and sisters in my ward and be aware of their needs while I'm partaking of the sacrament and think yeah. about how, as the family of Christ, how can we help each other? Right. And and just kind of as a final thought about the sacrament is, you know, it as I thought through this idea of if I consider it an intimate time to commune with my Savior, what would I say? What would What would our conversation be like? And to me, it's this like paradoxical, you know, blessed conversation that's just filled with gratitude and yet pleading for what I, for what I, what I need. Right. And, and so for me in some ways, and this is just one approach, but many times as the sacrament is being administered during the administration of the bread, the bread of life, the gift or whatever, I like to effuse that with gratitude. Think of everything that the Savior has done for me. Think about my blessings, what has come through him. And then for the water, that's, I need the cleansing. I need his healing. And that's where I, that's the pleading, the pleading for me. And that those, that those take me to the sac the sacrifice and that there is both blessing and longing that we have because of what Jesus Christ has done. And both of them, both of the, th the things that we need and the things that we have, can all are all achieved through him and because of him. That is so beautiful. I one one of the things I love to do also during the sacrament is I like to think about my patriarchal blessing. And the reason why I bring that up is because oftentimes when we think of our patriarchal blessing, we kind of put it up on a shelf and then we dust it off when something really difficult comes. But I always have my patriarchal blessing and I keep my journal. I have my journal that I take every Sunday. And the reason why I do is to write down those feelings, look at my patriarchal blessing and say, all right, are there things in that blessing that I must change? And so I think all too often we have those spiritual epiphanies during the sacrament, but if we don't write them down, if we don't make sure that we have some way of reviewing them and thinking about them, then yes, for that moment in time, I remember it. But I don't know about you, my memory's really short and I forget. And so writing them down and also having a way to go back and 
remember those thoughts and feelings, I think, are also important yeah. and powerful. I, I love Mar Mariana's a very good example. I, if I listen carefully, I definitely go out and try to do I, But I need to hear it repeatedly, Mariana. This, <laughs> I think it's a wonderful idea. I am think I can't help. I love this idea, Stephanie, of thinking about the intimacy of the Passover meal where we're all together and the Savior breaking that bread and telling his disciples, eat, this is, this is, eat, this is my, in remembrance of my mm -hmm. body, which will be broken for you in it's, my blood. It's, it's a promise um, to be close to them. It is. Right. And it, it, it makes me think of that lovely children's song, you know, if the Savior stood beside me, mm -hmm. would I do the things I do? Would I say that, what are the, do you remember yeah, the words? That's right. That's right. I, you know, would yeah. I say the things I say and mm -hmm. would I follow his example and all yeah. those things? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, I love that, to think that the Savior is beside you when you are taking the sacrament and that we renew our desire during that quiet time. I often just pray during that time, mm -hmm. but I think to think about how we can serve the people around us, how we can do what he would have us do, you know, how we can extend our presence for him in the place where we are. Well, and I think that goes to the next part that I wanted to talk about, and that's found in John 13, because it also shows how the Savior wants us to serve others. Now, we talked about, you know, the woman that washed his feet, but now we're going to see how the Savior washes others' feet. And that's the reason why I just love putting those two stories together. So in, in John, this is the first 17 chapters of, I mean, verses of chapter 13. And so um, Jesus knew that his hour was come and that he was about to depart from out of this world. And the supper being ended, so this is the end, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from the supper. Now, I want to just point out that Judas is still there. And so when we think about this washing of the feet, which was such a humbling experience for him to be, and we're going to see how Peter, you know, says, well, what are you doing washing my feet? I should be washing your feet. And so, but think about him washing Judas's feet. You know, Judas was there, and yet he was washing his feet as well. There's, there's something I wanted to say, and I, I'm so grateful you talked about Judas because I wanted to bring it up. And that is, you know, Judas was what they called a Jewish nationalist. That's what they call it, a Jewish nationalist. He was desperately concerned for the sanctity of their country. And recently I heard on the news, you know, something about Christian nationalists. And I realized that is not a thing. We cannot be, owned, because you see how it completely blinded him. Right to what his spiritual responsibilities were. And we have to understand that we need to be very careful about letting these, these worldly things become so important that they literally blind us. Here he was with the Savior, spending all that time, and he was able to do this in the fervor of his nationalism, right. potentially. Well, and so then we have him basically, you know, laid aside his garments. He took a towel, girded himself, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, 
to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. And then Simon says, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus said, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And then Peter said, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And then Simon Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus, you know, in the typical Peter, okay, fine, then wash all of me. <laughs> and I love what he says. And then Jesus says, no, it's okay. You know, we'll just do the feet. Um, so, uh, but I, I love this vision where at the very end of doing this, he also gives this, verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that has sent him. And so, and then the the very last thing, and if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. So he wants us to serve in this very, you know, uh, we're talking humble, 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 dirty way. You know, it's it's not a clean. Their feet would have been, my feet are kind right. of a mess right now, but <laughs> unpleasant. But yes, right. so because they're walking in sandals and oh, dirty yes, streets, and dirty and, streets, yes. and yet he's willing and able to do that because. He is their servant, even though he's their master. But as a master, he is their servant. Um, I'm also going to be reading from Elder Holland because he as well talked about this beautiful, beautiful experience. And he said, In the midst of this meal and such thoughts, Christ quietly rose, girded himself as a slave or a servant would, and knelt to wash the apostles' feet. This small circle of believers in this scarcely founded kingdom were about to pass through their severest trial. So he would set aside his own increasing anguish in order that he might yet once more serve and strengthen them. It does not matter that no one washed his feet. Well, and we know that the we do have that, that the woman did before. Mm -hmm. But um, in transcendent humility, he would continue to teach and to cleanse them. He would, to the final hour and beyond, be their sustaining servant. So as I was thinking about that, I also thought about this ordinance of washing of the feet and the fact that that also was continued by Joseph Smith. Matter of fact, in 18, 1833, January, when people were getting ready to be a part of the School of the Prophets, part of that um, coming into the School of Prophets was Joseph Smith doing the same kind of a thing, the ordinance of washing of the feet. And he, the Lord commanded the elders to clean your hands and your feet before me as a witness that they were clean from the blood of this wicked, wicked generation. And Joseph Smith went on to talk about how this was also an ordinance to show unity and brotherhood and realized this was also done as they prepared for the Kirtland Temple. So it was done, this ordinance of washing of the feet was done for the school of the prophets, just men, but also for preparation for the temple. They, they would also, 300 priesthood holders in the Kirtland area had their feet washed as well in preparation for that glorious, glorious event. So I wanted to ask you, what simple acts of service can you give the Lord that are similar to that washing of the feet? And so how can we figuratively wash other people's feet? What are your thoughts on that? I think, I haven't thought this all the way through, but I think that there, 
without even thinking about the actual washing of the feet, just the fact that the Savior got up, went to where they were, and lowered himself down on their level is an important thing that we can do for other people. Going to them where they are and being where they are and serving them in that place. And I think that the Savior just gave a beautiful example of that, of just showing humility, even though he was greater than them, showing humility before them and just expressing love and a willingness to be there at that time and to connect with them. And I think that sometimes that's all that we can do sometimes for people. Um, it's, It's showing up, putting ourselves on their level, having compassion for them, and just serving in whatever way we can so that they feel our love for them. That's beautiful. I love it. I think that it's also understanding that that the little things matter and and not only little things, but that we take the time. It may feel like a big thing for us sometimes. Somebody has a need. They call and they just need they really need help. They need someone to bring them something or to pick them up or to to do something that takes time out of a life that may be already quite booked to understand this is the Savior's work. This is it. The other stuff that I'm doing, it's great, but that is an opportunity. It's a wonderful opportunity. It magnifies my mind, magnifies my heart. But the work of people who need us is the Savior's work. And to be aware of it and to respond to it and to make it a priority to be able to push the other things down on our list and do those things when they present themselves, I think is really important. And I think, you know, just in, um, in our own lives with our children, our grandchildren, all of that, to be willing to do the hard stuff, you know, to help the moms with the babies who are crying, to wash them, to feed them, to, it's important not to feel like, I've done, I've been there, done that. And in church too, you know, I've been there, done that. As he says, um, um, where is it, where Mary, Mariana, where he says it will, that about the happiness. Oh, oh here it is. If as- you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Mm-hmm. You know, we have opportunities to serve in unexpected ways and I, what I've discovered is happy are we if we do them. I um, had, and you know, for me, it's it's a big thing because being punctual is not my strong suit. Heavenly Father knows I'm working on it. I've been working <laughs> on it for a long time. But I've had help recently because I now, our new ward building is quite away from our house, comparatively speaking. It's fast in the morning because you can go on the freeway and it's very, but um, now I've had the opportunity to pick up two wonderful sisters who live beyond the ward building and takes a little work because some of them have some things that have to be gotten into the car. I have been so happy and amazingly, I was even an hour early for church, I think last week, which for me, (laughs) the door was shut, locked. I had to call people to come to the door for us. Um, and that is because one of my wonderful sisters has a wonderful influence on me, Darlene. I'm talking about you, Darlene Wedgworth. And she she said, Annette, I know it's hard for you, but I think we've just got to get there earlier. And I just, I'm going to do it for Darlene. I'm going to oh, do it. And it. I just rearranged my whole way of looking at the project. And 
truly the happiness I receive. My other sister, Nellie, is so funny and so smart. And I've learned so much by being able to have her come to church with me in a way that I wouldn't have had that opportunity. So I think that as we truly serve, we will experience what the Lord said, happy are ye if we do them, if we do these things. Well, and then he goes on in this beautiful chapter to talk about, you know, I think it's also interesting in verse 33, he says, little children, and, you know, yet a little while I am with you. And he's not talking about little children. He's talking about the apostles. Yes, well, but um, God. <laughs> but I know. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. But then 34 and 35 is what we're going to be talking about next, where the Savior says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And Annette, that beautiful story about how you pick up these two sisters and bring them to church, what a, a fabulous example that is Sweet. of showing love. Well, I others. get a lot of love back in that, I will tell you that. But I wanted to begin by reading the first verse, which you may have um read Mariana, but I loved it so much. And I was so grateful I had these two beautiful verses to focus on. But the first verse of chapter um, of chapter 13 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Isn't that beautiful? I love this. This is our mission. We need to love until unto the end. That's what enduring to the end really means. That was something that was also, I, I don't know if I'll find it, but Gloriana, somewhere she said it was something about enduring. And she said enduring means loving mm -hmm. to the end. And I think that because... When we cease to endure, we somehow find a reason to love less, I think. But here, beautifully, this is his new and most important commandment. It overrides everything else in a sense. Not that the other things aren't important because he has stressed that not one jot or tittle will pass from the law. He, is, he tells people, you go and pay the offering. You know, when your leprosy is cured, go to the temple and give them what you're supposed to give them. But now he says what is really at the center of it. And he says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, which is not wishy-washy love. It's yeah. Not love, not love one another your best, love that's, one another my best. That's right. So Which that's a pretty a high standard. Standard that <laughs> yeah. you say, yeah. love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all people, I'm going to say people instead of men, because I know some people, all know that ye are my disciples. If ye have love, one to another. This is the calling card. Mm -hmm. This is the calling card is how much love are we showing? How much love are we showing 
everywhere we go. To the person who, I had a special opportunity to show love because, I mean, I got wonderful service. Um, Mariana knows because it's something we share, but I've had, first, when I first met Mariana, I was in a wheelchair because my um, left hip was really out and I, I could not walk anymore except for a very short distance without being in extreme discomfort. So for a, quite a period of time, people had to push me in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And I had an opportunity to be very grateful for that. And in the airport, you know, I would have people push me. And I really enjoyed that. It was a little more expensive because I really listened to their stories. And they had such, some of them had such amazing stories. You know, their families were far away in other countries. They were here just trying to earn enough to maybe go back to visit or to bring one there. And I would spend more than my airplane ticket giving them a tip, you know, um, because I felt like the Lord had brought us together for an opportunity for them to serve me and for me to show back love to them. But there are so many opportunities for this. And I, I think this is the answer. You know, there's the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, um, that I have to say that Bono himself came and sang that song at my father's funeral, oh, which was wow. kind of cool, but it was a wonderful, I was very touched that he chose to sing that song because he felt that my father and my father was with all of his things, he was a man filled with love. And he, and he felt that and he saw his desire to share that love in different ways in the world. But love is truly the answer. Um, in this passage, you know, he explains to the disciples, this is how people will know you. And my question is, how can we be sure we are doing our best to love one another? How, how can we just be that love? Stephanie. I don't think, I don't think we can be that perfect love on our own. And so we need, we need his help and we have to ask, I mean, we know that charity is the pure love of Christ. And that doesn't just mean how much we love Christ. It means feeling Christ's pure love for other people. And we need his perspective and we need his blessing and his grace to help us feel that because it's beyond our own power and the limitations of our natural man. That's right? so important. Yes. So and and we so to... we see we seek it, and they we're taught that charity is a gift, and that we seek after it. We have to ask for it. We have to yes. pray for it. Mm -hmm. We have to recognize our need for it. Yes, we right. need to recognize situations where we are not feeling it. Right, and realize the problem is not the person for whom we don't feel the charity. The problem is our desire. Right, and it goes back to that Lord, is it I thing? Right, recognizing where we are being, we are withholding love from people for reasons that are not everlasting or enduring, right? We are not being enduring in that love. We are being conditional and we're withholding love. And this goes back to what you were sharing, but I've just kept thinking about it where the Savior said that if I wash you not, you have no part in me. Right. And it just makes me think about President Nelson's recent challenge for us to have daily repentance because as we allow the Savior to oh, cleanse us, then we become closer to him we have part in him and he in us that's oh, what that's that beautiful. that's what brings us together and so that 
So in these matters where we are with, where we are tempted to be selfish or bitter or unkind and to not give freely of God's love to people around us, we need to repent so that he can wash us and that we can become one with him and feel that pure charity in our service to others. Well, as we conclude, I know, I I do too, I do too. As we conclude our time together, I was thinking about the song, As I Have Loved You, Love One Another, and songs and hymns in general, how they also help inspire us to be able to have that gift of charity, to think about what we must do to be kind and loving to others. But there was also a hymn that was a part of this Passover feast. In verse 30 of Matthew 26, it says, and when they had come, and when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Mm -hmm. So the hymn was the prelude music to the atonement in Gethsemane. And I and I thought about how is that important to us? And one thought that came to mind for me is that we always sing a hymn before the sacrament. We do. Which is in, mem- in memory of Gethsemane and Calvary, right? And so we're following the Savior's example in doing that. But taking it one step further, I thought we all sing a hymn. We sing it together. Mm-hmm. We harmonize and come together as one voice from our thoughts and our actions and our bags and our journals and everything Children. we have with us. We all focus on this hymn and we sing the song of redeeming love and in and a prayer, offer a prayer unto the Savior as we know uh, the Lord taught Emma, right? That uh, the song of a righteous is a prayer unto me. And that it the hymn becomes this uniting um, experience where we are all focused on the Savior right before we have this intimate communing experience with yeah, Him. It's so beautiful. Bond, that bonds us as one. Yeah. Really as we one. We sing with yes. one, one voice. voice. With one voice. And, and, and that's what And not every voice is be. the same, but we no. harmonize and it represents the unity of Zion that we all share this love and worship for the Savior. I love that. Uh, we become one. Yeah. Thank you so much for these beautiful words. I have to admit, too, as we look forward to our sacrament service this Sunday, that we too think of how we can become unified in terms of charity and love, but also following the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 